Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome back to another episode of High Resolution. I'm Seamus Byrne. This week, our video games industry guest is Ron Curry from the Interactive Games and Entertainment Alliance. Recently, IGEA put out a report that looked at sort of the state of the video games industry here in Australia and a bit of a state-by-state analysis of where things are doing well, where things could improve, And a real focus on that idea that there's a lot of money being left on the table, that if there was a little bit more support for the games industry businesses out there and the developers, then maybe Australia could have a bigger slice of the pie when it comes to just how much money we're actually making uh, for our games industry, and obviously then for Australia. So we talk about a lot of the different things, the money, the opportunities, and we get into the politics and what we hope for from the future and whether we can beat generational change. All that and a lot more, and we kick things off by asking Ron, I guess the general takeaway of what this report represents and what they think it says about the industry. Yeah, I think, uh, Seamus, I think that it reminds us and, and confirms us it's just how resilient our industry it is, how stable it is, and the potential it's got. I guess they're the three things that really jump out at me uh, when I look at this report. Um, and it's it just shows that, and, and luckily, that we've, we've just gone through a, a horrendous 12 months uh, with COVID, yet the industry was benefited from it. I kind of, in some ways, you feel embarrassed to say that. Yeah. But certainly people lent into games, and this is, you know, we can be proud of this, People lent into games over the last 12 months because they connected people and they gave them a, a safe space or, or an alternate space to be. Um, and it just allowed them an escape. Uh, yeah. It allowed them, like I said, a connection with other people. Uh, and it really showed the power of, of video games over that period of time. Yeah, look, it's a great point, isn't it? I mean, if we did get go back even, you know, like – pre kind of smartphone era you know like there was just such a different there was such a different way that sort of people connected through games that like that it was 
a great, you know, like as horrible as it's been that that games were able to sort of really shine because of the evolution of sort of networked gaming over the last sort of decade, you know, to be able to be happening on any device and connecting us in so many different ways. Yeah, and that's right. And 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 through a whole lot of different games and different genres. Yeah. Like, you know, I saw, you know, if I take my three sons, for example, they all they all just jumped back into the old days. They started playing COD, they started playing FIFA because they're in three different locations, different, you know, different states. Yeah. I, I saw, you know, them then alternating and playing really basic games like, you know, I can't remember, it was like a words with friends with their grandmother. Um, because they were connecting with her because she was isolated, locked down in North Queensland or, you know, on the Sunshine Coast. No one could visit her. Um, so there were those different games that allowed different people to connect differently, whether it's for those small intimate moments um, or that, you know, that deep play, like, you know, spending way too much time on COD. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and look, one of the things that kind of jumps out at me in some of the info that I think, you know, like, and it, it speaks to both the way that the local industry has evolved, um, but sort of also, you know, part of, I guess, what's so impressive about it is that so much of the activity is actually, um, you know, new and locally owned intellectual property sort of being generated here. You know, I guess when we look at the wider, you know, sort of, um, you know, arts industries and films industries and things that it's often, you know, a lot of that work is kind of is underpinned by sort of, you know, globally, global things kind of happening in the local market. Whereas games, it's like so many of the companies really are sort of, you know, being able to invest and develop their own, their own stuff and then sell that to the world. Yeah. And that's, what's really important is that, is that keeping that IP in Australia and that, that talent pool in Australia. Um, but the cool thing about games is, you know, they're created here, but they're created for an export market. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, if you only created games for an Australian market, it, that's cool, but you know, it's a tiny market compared to the globe. But you know, once, once you know, you can create a great game and, and the world is right there to buy it from you. And I guess this is a message we just a bit of a sideline here. We try to keep taking the government, you know, about this export potential, this weightless export that are video games. Yeah, right. <laughs> that we can we can easily st- still export these things, even if like ships and planes aren't flying as much. Exactly, it's clean, and you know it doesn't cough. It doesn't need a mask. And <laughs> you know, I'm being cynical, but yeah. you know, yeah, yeah, absolutely right. You know, it's something that nothing get it. You know, COVID doesn't get in its way. Shipping doesn't get in its way. Borders doesn't get in its way. Um, and, and that's again, you know, the power of, of games. You know, of of you know, as as a as a cultural tool, as an engagement tool, as, and as a business tool, yeah. you know, it's it's good for the economy. Yeah. So one of the other kind of big shiny things in the, you know, the snapshot is that like 52% of Australian full-time employees in this industry are in Victoria, you know, 40% of the studios are based out of there. You know, clearly we've all kind of felt like Victoria was doing something right. Those kinds of stats seem to indicate that they're getting a bit of a, you know, a, a real sort of, um, you know, control, I guess. Well, control is not the right word, but like they've, they've become an absolute hub in this country and have kind of created this, you know, Victorian and Melbourne ecosystem in so many ways. Um, you know, what, what from your perspective do you see about sort of what Victoria's done right, you know, and are there lessons for other states or the federal government from, you know, what they've been doing? Victoria has done a lot of things right. And I think it, 
it's, it boils down the essence is they got behind the industry and not just saying, okay, we're just going to fund games getting made. Yeah. You know, that, I'm going to say that's easy. You know, relatively that's easy. You sit back, you know, you, you make a, a, a decision over the finance department and you allow a tax offset or however you're going to do it, and, you know, that everyone's happy. But Victoria just, that, that's the start of what they do. They fund games. They educate game developers. They pumped a, you know, a, a bunch of money into the arcade to ensure there was somewhere where developers could come and learn their craft and, and practice their craft. It's Melbourne International Games Week. They then look and they go, okay, well, what about serious games? We need to do something about serious games. What about girls in games? You know, what, are, what about um, esports? And what they've done is they've looked at the whole ecosystem and said, well, we're not going to cherry pick and we're not just going to go for the winners. What we're going to do is going to put our arms around the whole industry, no matter where that is. And I think Melbourne International Games Week just screams that from Victoria's point of view. If you just look at the amount of activities that happen over that week, or maybe it's even nine days now, um, you know, that's the success of Victoria. And, and that's led by the, you know, Film Vic, Creative Vic. But also if you look at Victoria, you know, look at the government structure, they have a Minister for Creative Services. I don't see that anywhere else. You know, we might have an arts minister somewhere. But, you know, Victoria have a, a creative services minister who is actually engaged with all the creative services and, and leads, from, leads from the front. That's a really good point. Like, what do you feel like, what is it about that subtlety of that definition, of that idea of sort of creative services as opposed to, you know, I guess the generic sort of arts umbrella? I think they both have a different innuendo, you yeah. know, and, and maybe this is just from where I sit, but, you know, the arts minister is, is probably, we, I guess we think of high art, we think of the ballet, we think of the theatre, you know, we, we think of the orchestras, which are incredibly important. But then we talk about creative services, we start to think, well, creativity and, and, the, and the economics of it or creativity and how it's a business yeah. or creativity and how it produces jobs and, and revenue and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So I think that's, you know, to me, that's the difference when you hear those terms um, between arts and like, a creative industry. And it says, you know, this is an industry. It could be whatever. And, you know, we, we, we keep talking about ourselves now about the creative export industry. Yeah. Because clearly, you know, the federal government love exports. So, or exporters. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, you know, when you talk about sort of putting your arms around sort of, you know, the industry, it's like it, in so many ways, to, in my mind, it feels like it's both like that it should be easier to, you know, again, it's like go and find some money. Yeah. On one level, it's easy to throw some money at something. Um, but on another level, it does feel like, um, that basic idea of saying just can you just care about us a bit more and pay us a bit more attention i mean i guess right i guess attention is a, a kind of limited commodity in the context of political will and attention so you know like what what do you feel like is the hard part of making that step to sort of say actually yeah money's great but just showing you can understand and help a community of people be able to sort of create these kinds of businesses, um, you know, it, it does in the end become harder. It does. And, you know, I, I sit with a lot of um, screen agencies, state screen agencies, and, you know, I, I had one yesterday. And there really is that that love and that that understanding and the, and the want to nurture the industry that sits within those, within those screen agencies. You know, I, I don't doubt for a second how passionate they all are. 
And they have the same issue, I guess, we do, is then convincing people who actually control those funds and allocate the funds to say, well, okay, games, games are really important as well. We know you love funding film. We know you love funding television. And we know you love funding foreign film, which drives me crazy. Um, we know you love bringing people into the country and paying for PD, P, you know, PDV offsets. But why can't we get games over the line? And we, we all feel that frustration. So, you know, the big challenges, I mean, obviously the, you know, the, the, the funding side of things is really important. Um, but I see sort of one of the things on the list of, of challenges is around that idea of, um, you know, attracting kind of the right kind of funding. Um, I'm assuming that's sort of beyond, you know, that government support, but also then whether that's, I don't know, is it sort of startup or other kinds of development funds? Um, you know, what does that kind of really mean when it comes to, um, or is that something that actually has to needs the kind of right government mechanisms in place to then encourage other people to sort of find that extra funding? Yeah, look, my feel on that is that if the government gets behind the industry and funds it, it creates an automatic signal to other um, funding avenues to say there's faith in this industry. The government has faith in it, yeah. therefore we have faith in it. And it's also... You know, part of that is other, you know, capital venturists or, you know, publishers or whoever's going to invest the money say, okay, there is a little bit of underwriting here by the government. There is a little bit of a guarantee here. And there's, you know, some we're all sharing the burden of it. Everyone's doing a bit of a lifting here. Yeah. So I think I, I think it starts with the government. I think that's the signal the industry needs. Um, and it's a signal also for big publishers to say, well, okay, the government's behind this now. Let's let's move into Australia. Let's create an ecosystem that every, everything is supported from the independent developer up to the AAA studio. And that's what really interests um, investors as well. When they stand back and look at it, right, Australia's got everything in place. We're now confident that we can go in there and start going, okay, let's, let's try put a bit of money here, put a bit of money there, let's experiment over here because overall the system is sound. It's a great solid foundation. Yeah, it's a good point. Like, yeah, that if yeah, if someone's been able to say, yeah, you know, let's say it's like thirty grand or something, and someone's like, all right, like we've got kind of, you know, that initial seed. If that came from some sort of government grant, it actually makes it, you know, easier for someone else to see that they're, you know, they're sort of topping up something that then will go a long way, rather than you know, giving helping someone get off the, the zero, <laughs> you know, and yeah. try to then build from there. Yeah. Yeah, and it's even as simple as, as an investor saying, well, games are 30 to 40% more expensive to make in Australia yeah. without that funding. So, okay, just looking at that, you know, that metric, okay, well, we might just have a look at Korea or Indonesia or, you know, mm. some anywhere else where, where at least the cost of doing business is relative to the rest of the world. Yeah. As, as opposed to more expensive. Yeah. And look, you've also reminded me there's, you know, there's an Australian company that um, I think they're in kind of, you know, lithium battery technology. And I kind of noticed recently that, you know, they they actually, you know, got a really big boost from the US and it was exactly the, like, well, not exactly, but, uh, you know, similar kind of concept to, to you talking about where they both got kind of a, a grant from you know um a u.s government agency but also then had an order placed with them by the same you know organization so it was almost like we're going to both in you know invest in kind of the idea that we want to fund the development of your technology 
and we're also going to buy from you um, based on the fact that we can see where this technology is going. And it was almost like this great kind of, you know, double-barreled um, effort to kind of elevate this company and, um, you know, help its kind of technology keep moving forward. And it's like obviously a completely different field, but as you say, there's so much attached to it, it's almost that signal that makes other people kind of go, oh, okay, right, that that company is doing something really interesting and worthy of, you know, of ongoing support and maybe we should be placing orders as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's a perfect example of what I was talking about. It's, it's that signal and the confidence. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Yeah. Um, so I think one of the other really big challenges looking back at last year, and I know, you know we spoke in the middle of the year last year, um, but you know now kind of looking back, and obviously as we're even heading into the next GD, GDF? Is that Glo- GDC, GDC, <laughs> yes. Heading the, the next- developers conference, yeah. Heading <laughs> to right. the next kind of GDC window, and it's like, well, there, yeah. I think we're again probably, you know, having a virtual type of thing, and it's not really like that. It's clearly been a very hard year for those kinds of opportunities, and I have spoken to, you know, a number of invest, uh, a number of people who've been like seeking investment at that important moment in the development of trying to you know, build sort of a new game or something like that, um, especially even things like game technologies, right? Because it's not just people making a game. Sometimes no. there's a company that's, uh, you know, developing an interesting middleware technology Correct. or something, yep. which is, I guess, part of the great story about, you know, Wargaming Sydney. Um, so it's it, it clearly has been a really tricky year in that sort of networking and community aspect because of our isolation. So I guess that's kind of the flip side to some of what's happened, right? Exactly. And that is a difficulty. And, you know, it's that it's both being able to sit face to face with somebody, but also all those serendipitous moments you have when you attend things like GDC. You know, where the business gets done in the cafes or the hallways or someone just saying, oh, I just, just met someone who'd love to meet you. You know, that stuff is, you know, is so important yeah. for, for all business. You know, not, I've been in a couple of businesses, but, you know, particularly in this creative when when you get to meet people that you would not ordinarily just bump into. Yeah, that's such a good point. It's like that difference between like let's catch five minutes now or versus like, oh, we'll catch up after the event and then it takes months. Like, 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Or, or you know, I, and I've seen, I've been in those meetings where someone says, "Hey, look, I know, I know this guy. Yeah, he's here somewhere. You know, let me jump on the phone or let me let me have a quick, you know, let's have a quick coffee tomorrow morning. Yeah, it's hard to have a quick coffee in San Francisco when you're sitting in Melbourne. You know. Yeah, and uh, and you know, we know business is much easier when you can eyeball somebody when you when you're sitting across the table from them and can have those conversations. Yeah. And so, yeah, when we look at the kind of the big dollar value type stuff that is around, you know, I think, you know, the top line thing from, you know, this latest report was the idea of $185 million in revenue. Um, and what window of time is that? That was 2019-2020 uh, sort of. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, again, I know we've talked about this before, but it's that sort of the question always comes up then. It's like, oh, well, well, if they if they're doing all right, then they're you know what's the problem? Um, yeah, what is it about? Um, you know, is there any kind of stats that sort of say actually you know if you know if you invest a dollar, you're going to get two? Or like, are there any of those sorts of things that help to kind of you know clarify that sense of? Imagine how could it could it how big it could be if there was more support in place? Sure, look, and there is, and and I guess the first thing we need to do is. You know, $185 million sounds awesome. You know, it sounds like a good industry. But when you put that into context of an industry that's worth $250 billion, Yeah, that's a B. It's, yeah, yeah, that's 0.06%. So for every $100 we spend on games, six cents of that is generated from Australia. And that's just not good enough. You know, yeah. we're, we, we should be punching way higher than that. And there's a conversation we have with the government, you know, are we happy with 185 million, or do we want, you know, four billion? Do we want to be Canada? Do we want five billion? You know, do do we want to be like, you know, some of the Nordic countries? You know, there's a huge potential there yeah. to really ramp up that number like twentyfold. Yeah. And that twentyfold number increase includes, you know, increasing staff and increasing business and the you know the GST we get from that and then the payroll tax and all the other stuff that that goes along with that. And that's, I guess, um, where we want to start that story is saying, let's just let's not just sit back and saying 185 million sounds good. Yeah. You know, let's let's contextualize that and say where can it go from there? You know, how how big can that number be? You know, we're saying, you know, that that number could be, you know, four billion, or it could be, or it could be larger. Yeah. I'm curious about things like the, you know, the sort of the Friends of Games type stuff that you've set up. Um, well, you haven't set it up, but like, you know, that has kind of been encouraged uh, that, you know, is now sort of happening in, in Canberra, things like this. You know, how do you feel like, um, you know, that sort of process? I, I In my brain, I always feel like, you know, are we beating generational change you know it's just like can we get there faster than just having to wait for you know old people who think it's kid stuff to move along and the young people to you know sort of get more of the you know into more roles that that have more uh ability to change stuff you know are more people waking up to stuff even if they wouldn't i guess necessarily be expected to just because they happen to be below a certain age yeah Good question. You know, it's and like the Parliamentary Friend of the Games is is a really interesting group, and we're really happy to be to have been in, you know part of that. And that's a bipartisan group. So you yeah. had Senator ja- Senator James McGrath and Tim Watts um, co-sponsored that, and we had a great day in Canberra. And it was really interesting when you can take a bunch of politicians from both sides or all sides actually. They had all sides of politicians there, 
and stick some games in the hand, particularly all Australian-made games. Yeah. And and see them enjoying the experience, seeing them um, playing cooperatively, which was awesome, seeing them play against each other, which was just as interesting. <laughs> yeah. Um, but just demystifying the industry and reminding them that it's both fun, um, it's connecting, and it it's it's great business. Um, and the, the more people we speak to in, in government, the more buy-in we get. We went to a parliamentary hearing uh, two weeks ago, and um, I always forget his first name, but Zimmerman, Trent Zimmerman yeah. um, from from the Liberal Party was there and said, look, this is the greatest untapped, you know, creative industry we've got, greatest untapped economic potential we've got. Why aren't we doing more with it? And we get that at every single um, presentation we do, every single parliamentary hearing we go to, we have this resounding, you know, agreement that we should be supporting games. You know, we've got a, we've got a list of places that we've, that we've gone to and said, yep, you know, games should, you know, Austrade have said it. The Small Business and Family Enterprise Ombudsman have said it. The Standing Committee on Trade and Investment have said it. Now, James McGrath said it in Parliament. You know, there's this swathe of people, but it's the pointy end we're not getting at. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's where I get the rubber hits the road. It's, you know, the three or four people that sit around at the end of the day to approve the budget that needs to say, yes, we have commitment. And I think maybe that's where, Seamus, I agree with you, that there's a cultural and generational gap that we, that we haven't bridged. Yeah. I mean, on, on those last few people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, are you seeing sort of any, you know, like clever, I guess in the end, a lot of these are startup businesses, you know, it's like are there other mechanisms out there, you know, across those kinds of, you know, sort of startup sectors or things where there are still sort of opportunities to get supported that aren't directly about games but that, you know, if you're if the company is kind of thinking a little more laterally, they've been able to find ways to, you know, to get support in whether it's different state or sort of federal type things that can actually help them to, you know, get the funding or, or you know, there's like startup hubs. There's all these kinds of things in different places, even if they're not specifically about games. Yeah, and there are pockets of those around the place. You know, there are startup hubs. There's yeah. different, you know, different states have different styles of funding for um for technology, for for investment in technology, you know, and a whole bunch of stuff. Some of them, you know, the way the the grants are written or the applications written kind of exclude games a little bit. We've done a lot of work around this and going back to the states saying, maybe if you just rejig this a little bit or reword this a little bit or make it easier. Yeah. Um, because, you know, and uh, they don't take that kind of the creative side of games in to consideration. It's more like, you know, is it fintech or or medtech yeah. or something like that, it's, which is slightly different. Yeah. Um, and generally, it's something a little a little more um, concrete, less ethereal than a game. Yeah. Um, but look, there's certainly there's certainly pockets of that all over the place, and that's even right down to the local council level. You know, we're having chats this week about you know the Sunshine Coast Council is looking at how do they attract video games, or you know Port Phillip Council have a video games um, plan, as well as other technology plans. And it's, I guess it's just getting out there and finding them. And in some ways, that's our job as a trade association. Because, you know, if I'm a two or three or four-person development studio, I put my head down and my bum up creating something awesome. Yeah. <laughs> not, cr- not crawling through the local council, um, you know, grant application to find out whether there's something that could be, you know, massaged uh, so I can apply for it. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I'll, I'll jump back to one of the things around resilience that you sort of said in, you know, some of the key things that are, are really positive for the industry um, because it does seem like, you know, I guess the longer that the story sort of goes, um, you know, and there's some great stats off the back of sort of last year in terms of, you know, staff retention and, and different things like that. But also, I guess, the idea that people, you know, a lot of studios, that it's not just like they're trying to make one game and then that's it. Like dream fulfilled, I made the game I always wanted to make. Like in so many ways, it feels like people need a better understanding of that idea that, you know, that what you're investing in isn't someone making one game. It's it's the creation of a whole new business that aims to, you know, to be here to either keep servicing that game because a game can have a, you know, a 10-year life cycle these days or more um, or to, you know, to make a game and then make another game and another game. Yeah, look, I don't, you know, the the few overnight successes that we've had in Australia off one game usually took 10 years to get the overnight success. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so you're right, you know, these these creators are, are in for the long haul. Um, you know, it's, they're not just banging out one game. And quite often they're doing a whole lot of other cool stuff, funding themselves to create that game. Yeah. They're, they're, they're working with enterprise, they're working with government, they're working with educators or they're working in the health sector using their skills as game developers to create content uh, that's that's having some positive impact somewhere. You know, it, it, it may be working for the Department of Health or it might be, yeah. you know, creating stuff to train a truck driver um, or teach road safety or, you know, work in hospitals teaching, you know, how to read a blood pressure monitor. You know, it's all those sort of things that they're doing uh, to support their craft to create great games. And we see that, you know, all over the country. Yeah. And until they had their overnight success. Uh, yeah. <laughs> right. In so many so many ways it's a lot like, you know, thinking about um, you know, people who start a band, you know, except obviously it's a lot cheaper to, you know, start a start a band. Oh, actually it's probably cheaper to start making games these days, really. At least, you know, if you when you when you're just hacking away at it, trying to trying to learn your you know, learn the ropes. But yeah, it's like every band that's been an overnight success, it's like yeah, yeah. You know, and yeah. And all those Crappy gigs in, you know, garages yep. and weird bars. <laughs> Friends 21st for nothing. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, look, you know, what do you feel like, uh, you know, what at the moment are the kinds of things that you do hold up when you're trying to, you know, um, you know, tell this story, you know, the, the, the key successes, I mean, again, I'm sure we've sort of, you know, touched on lots of them in the past and I've spoken to some of them um, over the last year as well. But, you know, what do you feel like are those kind of the tent poles now? And in some ways I feel like there's probably more of them than ever before, you know, where there was a long time where it might be pointing to that one or two companies that you go, see, there's the good success, whereas there's a really sort of good spread of them now as well. There is there's lots of things to point to. And it's not always about the huge success. It's yeah. not always, uh, oh, well, you know, look at this game about a goose. How did that go? Yeah. It's not always about that. It could be, look at this game over here. But, you know, look at this game, Storm Boy. Yeah. Look how beautiful it is and look how look how culturally important it is. But let's look behind that. Let's look at the studio that make it. What other stuff are they doing? Yeah. You know, and and particularly, you know, and next week we're taking Tanya Plibersek on a bit of a tour of some studios and we'll take her and show her these sort of things and then stepping behind the curtain and saying, look at all this other cool stuff that's supporting this business. So that's, you know, that's on one side. On the other side, you know, we say, have a look at PAX. Have a look 
at these amount of people who are engaged in games. Look at how in, how much enjoyment they're getting out of it. Look at how much look at how little drama there is when people are at PAX. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I, I remember um, the first time I took someone from the classic or the head of the classification board, the director, to PAX, and at the time she said, "I can't believe how happy everybody is." And I said, "Yeah," and they're all playing video games. Who would have thought, right? Yeah. <laughs> but it was yeah. just one of those throwaway moments. It's yeah. like everybody's having such a great. There's so many people jammed into this hall, and everyone's enjoying themselves. You yeah. know, no one's no one's getting hassled. So there's a whole lot of touch points that we can use that because you know it's about the culture. You know, PAX is about the culture, and it's about um, the other side of the culture is look at look at great games like Moving Out. Um, in this great collaborative game or Stormboy. So, again, culture. Then there's the, the economics that sit behind it. Then we look at sledgehammer games and say, look at these people employing, you know, they're dragging people in to train us and they're employing a whole bunch of people and they've got this worldwide success that's coming out of Melbourne. So there's lots of stories. And, you know, I guess our job is to stitch them all together to ensure that, you know, they make this, this great narrative that we can take to investors and to government uh, and you know to policymakers. Yeah, okay. and that's the exciting part of what we do. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those frustrating things. Is part of the problem that because games are actually played by everybody, and that it is a point of you know pleasure and not a point of contention, that means that no one votes based on whether or not they care about games. You know that, or that whether our politicians care about them. We all kind of wish for more for games. But ultimately, it's not the thing that's swinging votes because everybody from all walks of life like games. And it's just, it's that nice extra, but it's not the thing that we're going to actually, you know, bang our fists about and say, if you don't fix this, then we'll change our vote. Correct. <laughs> Correct. And, and, maybe, and maybe a little bit sadly, if, you know, if you're one step removed from the local industry, there's nothing, nothing to fix. Games yeah. are everywhere. We've got plenty. We've got plenty of games. Why? Why do we need to focus on this? And I guess that that's a really understandable point. If you're a, if you're a gamer, you have access to all this awesome quality. Uh, but it's just when you drill down, you go, oh, actually, you know, what does that mean for this country? Yeah. And I guess that's not a story. You know, the government the government want to tell. Yeah. On either side, of, on the other side of the government, because you're right. Who who who's that invested to change their vote? Yeah. And that's, look, you know, yeah, I'm sure you know, but it's that annoying thing where you kind of go, you know, this is a great business opportunity and, you know, the coalition is the party of business and here is great business and it wouldn't take much to help those businesses be even better businesses. Ah. <laughs> you're absolutely right. <laughs> All right. See, I'll now I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm calm now and you're worked out, so that's great. <laughs> Okay, last thing. Let's have, yeah, let's finish on a positive. What what yep. excites you most about twenty twenty one? You know, what are you what are you eager to see? You know, as you know, at, at least here in Australia, we're certainly in a great place. You know, as far as COVIDs go. I mean, again, I doubt the GDCs and E threes and things. You know, are going to be quite you know the same. But at least here, you know, we're um we're in a really great place. You know, heading into the year ahead. But as an industry, sort of, what are you hopeful for? Oh, look, I think we learned a lot last year. You know, we, we, we go into 2020 and life is completely different. You know, this is not how we do things. We don't have GDC. We don't have E3. We don't have Gamescom. You know, there's, things were different and we we're all trying to adapt. I think now the exciting part is we've all got on with it. We all know what we're doing. We all know we can do business 
with or without that. And we know how to adapt or we've already adapted. So we're ready. You know, this is this is the new world and you know we're absolutely 100% ready for it because we've we've gone through 2020. Mm. And look, I've even noticed, you know, starting to sort of see notices of, you know, people getting hired, you know, Australians being hired by Australian studios, but a little bit more remote working going on like that, you know, that that idea of, you know, potentially, I guess you have to be sitting in Melbourne to get a good job in video games, even that itself might be shifting off the back of last year too. Yeah, and that's really exciting. And I know maybe we're thinking about the same person, but you've got someone in Sydney working for a company in Adelaide. You know, it's as a producer, it's it's awesome. You know, it's it's this you know movement of of intelligence without actually having to move your body around yes. the country, and that's really exciting. Yeah, exactly. And that's great. That's great for the industry. Yeah, brilliant. Look, Ron, thank you. I'm sure we'll chat again sometime really soon. Um, but yeah, here's to you know, onwards and upwards in 2021. Yeah, thanks, Sam. Looking forward to chatting again. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.